welcome to Careers in Discovery, where you'll meet scientists who've forged outstanding careers in biotech and hear about what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by Singular, building brilliant biotechs. Steve Trim is the founder and chief scientific officer of VenomTech, a truly unique company that helps biotech researchers to work with venom-based assays. Steve talked to us on Careers in Discovery about his journey building a remarkable company, how he learned to be an entrepreneur and business leader, and his experience contributing to the Human Genome Project. This week on Careers in Discovery, I'm really looking forward to talking to Steve Trim of Venantech. Steve, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for the introduction and the the opportunity to, to have a have a chat. Yeah, good to see you, Steve. Um, and I'm I'm really interested in your business and in talking about your career. Um, why don't we start by talking a little bit about Venom Tech and the and the pretty unique proposition that you've got there? Yeah, sure. So um yeah, Venom Tech are a very um unique business. I've got a large USP. Um, and that is that we provide venoms for principally drug discovery and mm-hmm. um biopesticides, um, uh, but also a, a third market is uh, cosmetics. And what we were doing, we what we are doing, <laughs> it's the same as what we were doing. Yeah. Um is providing venom so we've um got a collection of uh, venomous animals on site uh, which we we manage um to optimize their health and husbandry we recoverably collect the venom and i describe it much like uh, milking a herd of cows mm. and the, the term is called milking when you're collecting the venom um and then we separate it out into its component parts and it's understanding the biochemistry of those individual components and how they interact with uh, receptors and ion channels and enzymes, uh, membrane proteins, and all all the things that all the sort of cool biology within the venom, which then makes them useful as either tools or therapeutics or biopesticides uh, and, and and cosmetic active ingredients being the the, the third there. So, um, and it was set up to meet a need basically. Okay. That um, in drug discovery the you know, we call the low-hanging fruit the the easy drugs to develop have been mm. done so we're naturally therefore left with the tough stuff um and in pain and neuroscience these small molecules are um they struggle with selectivity because the ion channels are quite similar whether those yeah. ion channels are controlling pain processes or cardiac processes or central nervous system processes and obviously you want your analgesics to just hit the pain ones and not the mm-hmm. other uh, but that's really challenging and venom peptides have a, a larger interaction surface and they've all a lot of them have evolved to target um ion channels as a method of either um capturing prey or actually mm-hmm. um causing pain and teaching predators not to not to eat you mm-hmm. um and so by unpicking these individual components um we can actually find ones that are more selective and therefore potentially more um usable as a uh, an advanced pain therapeutic yeah interesting and and i suppose that that makes total sense as to why you would why you would explore the uses of venom if if the targeting is so good so uh, tell us about 
I guess the the origins of this idea and and where this business came from in the first place. So it's not the first place people would look for a for a therapeutic. I don't think. <laughs> no, no, that's that's very true. Uh, but there are therapeutics from from venoms uh, out on the market already. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll come to that in a bit. the The idea for me, um, or the the idea for Venom Tech really came from me and a a unique set of circumstances. Um, so I was working at Pfizer as a um, a biologist in pain and neuroscience, mm-hmm. and um, looking for better uh, analgesics and selective pro um, selective ligands for these. Uh, at that time, a voltage-gated sodium channels that people are still looking at now. Right. Uh, so I understood the deep biology of what we were trying to do. I'd been working in drug discovery for ten years, um, and understood that 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 process, but was really frustrated that we weren't able to get hold of uh, venom peptides in a, an assay-ready format. Mm. The academic literature was showing many of these peptides could be really useful for what we were trying to do, but actually sourcing them was um very very challenging right i was the safety officer for uh, or safety delegate for pain therapeutics uh, and that involved um toxins that we had been able to um acquire and work with uh things like tetrodotoxin from from pufferfish for instance um and the the third component is that um, i understood the the venomous animal biology because i've been keeping non-dangerous spiders and snakes as pets say bean i still do but (laughs) that that hasn't changed um and so when um pfizer decided that uh myself and my colleagues needed something new to do Mm -hmm. um when they downsized the operation in sandwich right um i then sort of realized i had those key skills and i knew it wasn't just a pfizer problem Mm. you know the reason that we are still struggling to get good pain therapeutics um out on the market is is this this problem and it's yes across all pharmaceutical companies that that um you know, we get incremental changes but nobody's fixed all all the problems yeah I and see. so that i knew that i wasn't just setting up a company to just supply one customer because that's a, a foolish errand uh, i knew that it was a yeah a big market to try and and do and so they then yeah Went went about okay. Well, how do you collect venom from a spider? Uh, mm-hmm. sort of, yeah, work that out on the kitchen table, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I understood the 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 need and let's say the the safety. And then I, I then formed Venom Tech um, in just under a month from okay leaving Pfizer, which was uh, possibly a little too fast, um, but it is. <laughs> It is. It is part of the story. It's what happened. Yes. Um. And then uh, I funded it through my uh, redundancy initially, and then went to sort of grow the company uh, from from there later on, because my my mindset is a scientist. Even thirteen years later, I am chief scientific officer at Venom Tech, not mm-hmm. the CEO, um, and that's deliberate because. I I'm still very much a, a scientist. That is my my mindset. The the business yes. side of things I have to to work on, um, whereas the science comes more more naturally. That makes sense. And I suppose it, it's a it's a logical step to if as you say if you're trying to find pain therapeutics to think about well what are the things that cause pain and uh, what are what are the things that are very effective at that and and then 
you know, how do they do that? And and I guess that probably reveals some mechanisms that, that you can bridge yeah, that. That's part with. of it. But it, it also another core part is that the um, evolution doesn't have a, uh, a plan or a pattern. Mm. So when a venom uh, causes an excitation of a, uh, an iron channel or a blockage, that impairs a prey organism's ability to get away in both mm. either direction. Um, and yeah, evolution is not fussy. If it, if it slows the prey down enough to be caught, it works and it stays. Right. So there are um, iron channels that are involved in in that that have then evolved in humans and become part of pain processing because mm-hmm. uh, we have you know all our life is sort of connected to one or at least a few forms, and so we share these common genes. Yes. Uh, so uh, and that's that sort of interesting serendipity that. Uh, Animals haven't really evolved to um, envenomate humans. That is, you know, we're quite new on the, the evolutionary scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the the one exception that is spitting in cobras. There's okay. a really really good paper in Nature uh, last year or year before showing that actually the act of spitting does seem to be directly correlated with bipedal hominids. Okay, um, interesting. But generally. Um, venoms have evolved to be active on other species mm. other than us uh, so it is a bit of a bit of serendipity we're making use of and and definitely venoms haven't evolved to kill cancer cells there's, there's no right. benefit in helping your host live longer <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's something they do and it's something that's yeah, useful in, in drug discovery yeah interesting and and you mentioned there was this gap in the market and that was sort of initially triggered by a problem that you were trying to solve yourself and, and a, a, a shortage that you identified and i'm surmising here so please do correct me if i'm wrong on this but i'm assuming it's the combination of these animals need to be treated in a particularly careful way um yep. but as well as then you need the scientific expertise to isolate the venom and isolate the active compounds and and turn it into something useful that can be used in in research yeah and no, that's exactly the, it but there's yeah, there are a few venom labs around the world, and most of them are focusing on treatment for envenomation. So they are mm-hmm. looking at the, the the challenge of the venom, and you know, the the only licensed treatment for envenomation at the moment is antivenom, so antibodies to those to yes. those venoms. And in large these groups, yeah, you know, that is their their focus, and so they don't understand the nuances of of drug discovery and the fact that we need to actually separate the venom out into its component parts because some uh most venoms have several hundred components right. uh, and some it's a few thousand and when when you put all that mixture into a biological assay system you're going to get the sum of all the parts and not see the bit that's interesting yeah i see okay interesting so it's the so assay ready format that is the the key bit of, yeah. of what we do with the venom yeah interesting we will come back to this. <laughs> so you mentioned, Steve, as well, that, of course, you know, you were the founder of the company. You've uh, taken a decision to remain the chief scientific officer um, rather than taking the CEO position. So tell yeah. us a bit about that and tell us a bit about what you're spending your time on and uh, and what, what your day looks like. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for the first 10 years, I was I was leading the company, mm-hmm. um, but it was clear that that was um a hard task ultimately trying to do the science and the management uh, and everything together and so when we raised um equity investment in 2020 on the back end of that that year um part of that plan was to bring in a ceo 
mm-hmm. and um, Paul Grant's the guy who've brought in. He's been with us since then, uh, leading the team, and he's an assay um, commercial guy. So come from um, DiscoverX amongst many other companies. Yeah. Um, and so I had that commercial uh, expertise uh, and keen to take on the the reins and the opportunity of the CEO. Um, and it allows me to then focus on the the science because mm-hmm. a lot of our customers don't know they want venom, but they do know that they've got a problem trying to find a drug or a, a pesticide to do what they need to do. Okay. And yeah. so I spend a lot of my time um, educating people in how venoms work and how they could be useful in their assay platforms mm. and then how they could be developed as uh, drugs or, or biopesticides. And um, sometimes that's directly talking to the scientists um, and other times it is writing scientific papers or books mm-hmm. or um, presenting uh, at conferences to, to get that information um, out there. Um, and the other, the other reason is that's what I would like, enjoy doing more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the science, um, both my wife and I, sort of biology is a, a way of life. It's who I am. It's not... Right just a job i do i don't switch off from being a biologist <laughs> yeah of course. Um, and so you know being able to sort of focus on that that science is um is the fun part of the job for me yeah and you mentioned earlier as well that you were already interested in keeping exotic animals and so yes. you've been able to combine that passion as well with with this which is i guess a, an added bonus yeah very much so and a lot of people think oh you know i've got into it because of the the pet keeping and mm. and that's not quite that way around the, the mm-hmm. passion is for the for the, the the science and biochemistry the pet keeping is an enabler that yes. helped me solve that problem yeah sometimes it's about the perspective at which you look from which you look at these problems isn't it and yeah. it's all your experiences that, that add up to that so yeah that, that makes sense um but let, let's take it further back uh for a little bit Steve, and 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 talk a little bit about i guess the the origins of uh, of your scientific leanings, uh, and so because I know you trained as a geneticist originally, yeah. but tell us a bit about you know why science, why genetics, why why drug discovery, why this career for you in the first place. That's a great collection of questions, yeah. And for me, um, I can't define why science. Okay, it was just ever since I've had science, you know, come across in my path at school, it's been fascinating. Mm. I can define why genetics though. Okay. Uh, and that to me comes down to a, a single moment. Um, so yeah, sort of, you know, just sort of at, at school, all, all science I was, you know, um, involved with sort of great sort of lapping it up, but it was a program by David Suzuki. And this, uh, probably was going to be somewhere in the late eighties or early nineties, mm-hmm. um, about the, potential of the human genome project and yes. i remember him standing there with a huge filing cabinet and pretending to have a printout of the human genome uh, which wasn't a um it wasn't reality then because the project hadn't um got that far mm-hmm. through but it was about to be starting and saying that you know, these four letters encode everything that the human body does mm. and i was like wow you know and I, I need to know more about this. This is just absolutely amazing how a molecule makes everything that we perceive and see. And I just sort of, I need to know about this basically. Right. 
Um, so then I went to do um, A-level biology, chemistry and physics and a degree in genetics at uh, University of Wales in, in Aberystwyth. It's a fantastic location and a great mm -hmm. um, genetics university there. Um, and through that, we got exposed to um, molecular genetics, plant breeding, um, chromosomal um, research and a whole range of things. And um, it was sort of clear that that molecular genetics was really sort of my thing of, of understanding how those molecules are mm -hmm. con controlling the the natural world. And what was really great uh, opportunity, um, a little bit as you know, engineered, I went out there and got it. But but you know, being offered the opportunity is was the key thing. Yes, so I did my uh, year in industry at the Sanger Centre on the Human Genome Project. Wow, um, which sort of nicely tied up my um, inspiration for following mm -hmm. genetics, and that was in we were in a uh, a radiation hybrid mapping lab, so actually looking at where the bits of DNA uh, are on the chromosomes. I see, yeah, um, rather than actually the the full sequencing labs and. This lab was was running year out projects every year. Basically, um, a group of uh, undergrads would come in and add a bit more to the map. Um, and so, being able to do a little piece of that um, was was fantastic. Um, and then uh, they just sort of reinforced that, yeah, molecular genetics is is what I want to be doing. Yeah. Um, I did my final year project on a control of a metabolic switch in Clostridium bayerinkii. Mm -hmm. which is a nightmare as an undergraduate to try and spell many eyes in it. and an anaerobic bacteria. So okay. there was a strong uh, experimental discipline in having to work in the anaerobic cabinet. So, because if you've forgotten something, you have to degas it for two hours mm. before you can use it. Mm. So you get extremely disciplined in making sure you've got everything ready before you start. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, I applied for, PhDs and industrial places doing applied genetics. Basically, it was clear mm. to me that that was what was driving me. It didn't. I didn't mind whether it was going to be a, a PhD or in industry. I just wanted to do that uh, that science. And the the job at Pfizer was the one uh, that was most most interesting out of what I got offered. Yes, uh, and that took me around to to East Kent, um, starting initially in the um, gastrointestinal team. Mm -hmm. so we did a, a rotation through their pain therapeutics and uh, tissue repair and uh, genetic technologies and sort of all those three things um, to actually understand different parts of the business. Uh, and then, yeah, from that, it's sort of in, in big pharma companies, you end up being sort of molded, obviously, where the need is. And um, yeah, pain and, and neuroscience was the, the sort of need that I was there for yeah. for, for eight years. And then that then uh, led me into to toxins. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the world of uh, a protein biochemist rather than a geneticist. Yes. And it's it's interesting how often these sort of these these turns occur in, in people's careers, especially in larger companies, right? Because there's so many opportunities to do different things. Um, yeah. You can you can follow both the need of the business and, and your interest to some extent. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's both the things you can follow and things you you have to because of strategic yeah, <laughs> changes <laughs> within the company um, yeah. so i i suppose um 
you know, thinking about the time you spent at the Sangha and, and the time at which you were studying genetics, um, I guess if people are, are sort of fairly recently qualified scientists, the, the human genome product is probably something they take for granted, right? It's, yeah. it's, and there's, of course, still work to do on on mapping the dark genome yeah. and all these kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, but, yeah. but I suppose the things that are that are building blocks of research today and the advances that have happened in genetics and now genomics and, and everything that's come beyond that um, will still be informed when you were when you were learning about it. So tell, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so that was um, really quite um, fascinating that it was coming by mm. piece by piece. And um, because the Sanger being one of the core founders of the consortium, they actually had a counter up in the reception that was counting the number of bases that had been sequenced. I see. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, one of the things that happened in, in the year I was there, so that would have been uh 96 97 i think mm-hmm. um and we celebrated 100 megabases of a raw sequence that had been deposited by the by the consortium mm-hmm. um which was a fantastic thing and you know when you look at these um they call them flat files it is literally just reams of text with just four letters in it. right no structure or annotation to it um but yet if you're experienced you can see genes and you understand you know start codons and stop code you can start mm-hmm. to see things in the almost like matrix style <laughs> text, <laughs> um which is really quite um quite fascinating yeah um so drifting off on other things a little bit but um then um in much uh later it was only about five or six years ago i think it was at the welcome trust center in um just down the road from King's Cross. Mm. And they actually have a printout in chromosome volumes of the Human Genome Project. Okay. And it's not quite as big as David Suzuki's big filing cabinet. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is still, um, it's still huge. Um, and yeah, the fact the way that's sort of building and um, coming on. And then the uh, when the Nature paper came out of the first draft of the Human Genome of going, mm. yeah, I did a small part of that. Um, this minor bugbear that us year out graduates were not listed, <laughs> <laughs> but the author list was enormous. Um, yes, of course. And it's it, on this podcast now, Steve. So it's, it's, it's yeah, in the record. I've now. got my claim. Yeah. <laughs> I may have mentioned it once or twice before. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually as the sequences come together um, and you know, you could see the ensemble database building. So the European Bioinformatics Centre is it's still closely associated with the Sanger at that mm-hmm. site in Cambridgeshire. Um, and getting that annotation on the the genes, um, is it, it's sort of really, uh, really quite fascinating. Um, and now we're coming into a a, a new chapter where we're looking at the sort of, it's either ten thousand or hundred thousand genomes. I can't remember what what that project is. Actually, looking at um individual mutations and how right. what gives rise to the variety of um the human condition basically and where, where there is uh, mutations in the genes that are not very much normal just causing differences that we see in in protein expression mm-hmm. patterns as well as those that cause um uh, diseases and therefore gives us insights into into drug discovery um and one of the great things that the the human genome project allowed us to do is that sort of 
the thousand dollar genome because we can now sequence a whole human genome for about a thousand dollars right but only because that sanger sequencing template is there mm-hmm. these, these high throughput sequencing methods still can't tackle brand new genomes they rely they, they rely on on templates so that right because even though you know sanger sequencing is seen as sort of old old hat nowadays <laughs> but um for new genomes you still have to rely on a little bit of that sort of sequencing um but it has allowed the sort of high throughput um sequencing to understand diseases and this is something that became very relevant in my um career in, in pain at pfizer mm. and some of the pfizer scientists in the team we were working with um were doing a genome-wide association study with patients with a congenital insensitivity to pain now most people think that that is a a good thing if you don't feel pain surely that's great but these people have a very short lifespan and have a lot of comorbidities because when they rest accidentally on the cooker shut Mm -hmm. your finger in a door they don't feel the pain response so they get maximal tissue damage unfortunately and so doing this sequencing understood that there was a mutation in the uh, sodium channel NAV 1.7, it's a voltage-gated sodium channel, that infers this congenital insensitivity to pain. But otherwise, these, apart from um, a lessened sense of smell, otherwise these patient, patients were normal. Their cardiac function was fine. Their cognition was fine. So, so this, was, you know, this is the holy grail of, of pain mm. targets because if you have a mutation, it doesn't work. You don't have a, a side effect burden apart from your lack of pain. Right. And so then that led, uh, when that paper came out, the whole sort of pharmaceutical industry in pain research to move to, okay, let's go and you know, try and drug NAV 1.7. And the, the challenge there is that small molecules of drug NAV 1.7 also interact with NAV 1.5, which is involved crucially in cardiac pacing mm-hmm. which is a quite dramatic side effect <laughs> yes <laughs> of, of a drug uh, and then you've got others that are involved in the the central nervous system and several venom peptides particularly from tarantulas uh, because they are bigger protein bigger molecules they have a wider interaction surface okay some of them are a lot more selective to nav 1.7 over 1.5 and that then led into the, the the toxins and venoms we were just sort of talking about led to the the idea that that came into venom tech yeah and so it, it nicely links together that the the human genome sequencing sort of gave that that link into why i was then going to go and look at venoms and peptides right because without that there's no way to understand why why that um why yeah that without, that, happens, without that large right? scale like, yeah um sequencing we wouldn't have understood what was going wrong in these people yes. to actually then find ourselves with a, a gene target so for someone who was particularly interested in the applied nature of genetics i mean this must have been like a dream project to be yeah. and, and i get the sense as well from i've spoken to a couple of people who were either involved or peripherally involved in, in um in the human genome projects and there's always a sense that everybody was incredibly enthusiastic about yeah. it. It was about it was a project that people could, you could you could see the application of it unfolding before your eyes. Right? It must have been, yeah. it must have been a great place to to just if you needed any more fuel for that. <laughs> to, to get yeah, it totally. Yeah, it was it was fantastic, and um, 
they say because we we had that counter so every morning when you come into work right. you could see how many you know how many bases had been put in the database overnight yeah it was a, a 24 7 um operation with the sequencing anyway mm -hmm. absolutely and so you as you said you were you were looking at where to go next and and you were looking at furthering your academic career or, or going into industry and you you went to Pfizer um there aren't many bigger companies you could have gone to especially at this <laughs> no, time <no. laughs> um, and you were there for about 11 years something like that uh, yeah just under yeah 10 years and about four or five months I think so you've touched on some of the things through your time there that that led to what you do now particularly um but I suppose tell us a bit about the experience of being part of a company like that and the things that you learned there that have been, you know, useful for you in the rest of your career and, and the the way that that experience has influenced how you, how you do things today. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's, it's a, um, a really great job. Uh, I wouldn't have chose to leave. Mm. Um, and, and that's for, for many reasons that the, the learning opportunities are, are huge uh, out there and where um, I got to sort of, uh, senior and scientist level um that i was being presented with problems of you know biological problems of where is this gene expressed or which genes are controlling these sort of pathways but how i how i found that out was pretty much down to me mm. in it um and that that was really exciting um to actually go okay well let, let's see okay we've got a potential side effect um of this particular drug well let's see if that drug target is in in those tissues where that side effects coming in yeah sort of looking that apart and so the sort of freedom there to do to you know if you look at new techniques and go out and do um, gene chip analysis and you know anything you need to do on that then the opportunities for training were were immense mm. um and yeah i just sort of definitely encourage people to just grab all those training opportunities um because you never know what's going to be coming next um and although my core focus was gene expression studies um later on i was doing uh drug discovery pharmacology assays yes um and uh doing some protein biochemistry um which was frustrating at the time because i wanted to do more dna stuff but right. <laughs> in hindsight <laughs> it was incredibly useful uh, and then things like sort of um add-on tasks and stuff you know we've all got um other things that need to be done in the company and safety is one of those key things and i saw the opportunity of being the safety delegate as to sort of be able to sort of balance the books a bit because people see the safety people as sort of, sort of coming in and just sort of restricting all the fun things you want to be doing but on the other side of things you want to not be injured from doing your doing your work there's a benefit yes. there's a benefit from having those processes and sort of being involved there to actually look at okay well you know why do we need to work with this particular toxin for instance mm -hmm. and you know how can we um, do this in a safe way then actually you know let's restrict the amount we need and all sorts of simple things like this uh, but also then making sure that everybody's up to date with the, the literature of what they're of what they're doing what they're working with right. um and yeah it did i i didn't see it as the the great opportunity it was at the time um it was another 
again another thing that took me out of the lab mm-hmm. but it was a core set of skills that um when i was sort of forming venom tech to actually have worked with toxins i'd worked with the with the home office right. um and understood the, the biology of what we're trying to do principles of um separation and the standard hierarchy of control of um you know do you have to do it and if you have to do it can you have a physical barrier between mm-hmm. you and the dangerous thing and all those sorts of standard stuff but it then gave me sort of a um extra set of skills uh, yes. on the other side and that then actually led us to a a patent for a safe method of feeding venomous snakes right and all i did was imply employ the the hierarchy of control to venomous snake feeding is that when zookeepers feed tigers, they don't sort of walk in with a pile of meat on the back <laughs> and the tiger in the cage. Um, however, how uh, people were feeding venomous snakes was um, a bit more sketchy right, from my observational point. Because right. I'd been used to working with non-dangerous snakes. And yeah, yeah you open the cage and uh, offer them uh, a dead food item and the, the, that's fine. Whereas with the venomous snake, it's a bit more dangerous. Mm. And so we just got a, a piece of koi cart plumbing so a cylinder that bolted on the side of the tank. There's a slide gate on one end and a screw cap on the other. Mm-hmm. We can undo the screw cap, put the food in, screw the cap back up, and then open the slide gate. And the animal could get the food, and it was still contained. Right. And that was so revolutionary that the patent got got granted. Um, and we let it we let it lapse because it was just a safety statement from our point mm-hmm. of view that we're working differently with this. Um, but had I not had that pharmaceutical health and safety role and, and training i would have looked at other people and how they were keeping venomous snakes and just sort of yes. just followed suit yes but it actually gave us a completely new insight a new way of doing these things yeah absolutely and it's sometimes as you touched on there it's sometimes hard to join the dots forwards right sometimes you can only join them yeah. in hindsight <laughs> yeah yeah and, and the other great thing doing drug discovery in big pharma is the research budgets are huge. Sure, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that if you know, if there are things that will help you do your science faster and better, the answer is generally yes. Mm. Let's go and get it. And and when you then set up a small business, um, that was not useful training, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> because it's a very different, <laughs> a very different thing on the other side. It's yeah, a lot more, uh, not more inventive, and things take a lot longer. Absolutely. And I think there's a there's an emotional component to that, right? You really feel every pound that you spend. <laughs> yes, particularly when it's yours in the beginning. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, moving on then to, to Venomtech. So um, you said earlier that, uh, of course, you know, you had your redundancy package. That was your initial investment into the business. I imagine that only went so far because businesses <laughs> are expensive, <laughs> especially research businesses. Um and you turned it all around very quickly, as you mentioned. Um, you, you, you also said you've taken on someone to look after the business side of things now, but but that you were responsible for that for the first part of the business's life yeah. as well. So, I imagine there's lots of things that you learned during that time. <laughs> but you know, your memories of the early days of the business. What are the things that that stick out to you? Um, yeah, that, that is. Um... It's a steep learning curve and uh-huh. it is um, quite exciting. And the things that just um, I, I thought had 
more to it, I think. Um, you know, the fact that you know, purchase orders and invoices, when it, when it comes down to it, you just write it on Word. <laughs> <laughs> that That's all that they're required. Yeah. And, and in the technology age that we're in, a letterhead is not as daunting. You, know, you had to go to the printers and get a, a stack made in the typewriter days. Um, and to, to, you know, people say, well, can you send this on your letterhead? And at first I was like, uh, um, I don't have, well, what was that? And you realize that it, it's just your logo in the header yeah, of a, a Word document. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, things that seem daunting are, were not. But the big, the big thing, and it's a, it's a real cultural difference, um, is that if I was ever required to do anything that I hadn't done before at Pfizer, mm. it would either come with an SOP or training, uh, often both. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you're out in the outside world, it doesn't. No. And um, I think the first shock was the certificate of incorporation that comes through the post mm. is just that. It, it doesn't come with a handbook. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go looking to find out mm. what does it mean. Now I have a, you know, um, when you're signing up for a company, it does tell you about your, you know, the legal responsibility yes. that the company brings. It doesn't tell you how to do these things. No. It just tells you what. <laughs> um, and, you know, financial projections and stuff. You, know, you go to the, the bank when your um, redundancy runs out. And they ask for a business plan. Mm. Okay, well, I'll, I'll have to go and find out what one of those is. Then. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and things like this. So, um, my my learning was quite steep because, and it's something I I, I get asked to um, do lectures for universities and stuff, and mm-hmm. sometimes quite often on business as well as the science. Um, and my sort of top advice is if you're setting up your own business is get somebody else's money as well as yours. Yes. <laughs> because it was just my money. There was no checks. I didn't have a business plan. I had mm. a scientific idea. Turned out to be a good scientific idea, but mm-hmm. it was just a scientific idea. Um, it was only when that money started to run out that I actually then needed to build a business properly yes. to actually get other money in. And, and I think that was a, um, a big learning point for me that if I'd... Um, known that from the beginning and then gone and got um funding to go alongside my run the a would have lasted longer mm-hmm. but also we would have started from a much stronger point yeah it, and it creates some accountability as well right it's, it's yeah. uh you know it, You've got somebody else to answer to yeah it's and, easier and, and, to... and somebody else has checked your idea that it mm-hmm. is actually actually valid whereas when you start it up with your own fund that's not needed no, no. <laughs> I think you know if you if you find the right investors, of course, then then they bring something as well as money, right? They they will have a different oh, perspective. They'll have experience. They'll yeah. they'll have a network, probably. That you know, there's, there's there's the advantages of that as well. And I think, yeah, yeah, and yeah. One of the good things that kept me on the right track early on is that I knew a reasonable amount about what I didn't know, right? And I knew I had to go actively looking to find these answers and you very quickly come to the point where you can either pay for the answer or learn it Mm. (laughs) um and you can't learn everything ultimately so 
um I was right from the beginning involved in um getting you know going to local networking events both scientifically but also more local business networking events and and talking to people about what I'm doing and actually finding out what other people do right and I found a um a finance director who was really interested in um what I was doing in the science of what I was doing um so much so to actually have a bit more philanthropic relationship to to help me sort of build on actually the idea of getting a board of directors together mm-hmm. um and, and stuff like that so that was sort of started relatively early on in the first couple of years and then it wasn't just me i then then had a a team of people that were yes. looking at the governance of the company um which again was all new <laughs> new territory yeah of um, course. and by sort of networking and, and finding people and um you know sharing what little I had to actually uh, sort of try and build build that um and then yeah, just make use of every connection I, I could find and, and actively mm. going out there and talking to people and, and yeah old old school networking is really really valuable to find people that can help you out on working out you know what they want out of it and if it you know, it works both ways then you can build something together. Yeah, and I think this is sometimes the bit that the the sort of uh, the MBA programs miss, right? Is that you know some businesses are very technical, some businesses are not. Some businesses are very complicated, some businesses are very yeah. simple. But ultimately, it, they're about people in lots of different ways, right? So your customers are people, yeah. your staff are people, your board are people, your investors are people even your investors <laughs> yeah 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 and your customers are people yeah exactly exactly and and i think um you know that that's the bit that gets missed i think when you when you focus on these cold clinical analyses of of a business plan or what have you but but having those things is important and i think you know it's like you say you 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 can never learn everything as a ceo of a company no um, you've kind of got to learn enough to know what you need to know and what you need help. <laughs> yeah, and where your gaps are. And where your gaps are. And and as well, you know, there's always people who are, have a vested interest in making it seem more complicated than it is so they can charge yeah. you a lot of money for it. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, any, any, any advice around sort of how you've, you, obviously networking has been a big part of how you've learned things. Anything else that's been particularly useful for you? Um. Uh, yeah, so re- reading and, le- and learning you know I'm, I'm a scientist i'm used to researching mm-hmm. stuff the term gets banded around wrongly nowadays um but you know that that, you know, that old old school checking the sources and you know reading um valuable you know material uh and you know cross-checking it and stuff um to understand what what you need to do and yeah, listening to yeah, people again with um that, that have that, that good advice. But also things like the um Enterprise Hub. So the University of Kent mm-hmm. uh, Enterprise Hub was the first one we were affiliated with. So we, we started at the back back of a pet shop. Uh, okay. <laughs> that's where the animals were. Sure. Um yeah. and a bit of kitchen workbench um to uh actually work with some venom on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was Venom Tech version one. Um but I uh, there's another opportunity that that came up serendipitously really was um the uh, genetics lab at the university of kent wanted uh someone to analyze whole genome data uh in in birds and look at look at evolutionary genetics mm-hmm. and they 
asked me about it and I was like, well, you know, I have just started a business. I've you know, got a lot on my plate at the moment. Um, but then strongly suggested that I apply. <laughs> okay. Fair um, and I was like, well, you know, uh, my money's only going really in one direction at the moment <laughs> would would help there's a time constraint here but I, I can i can help so i then applied and I ended up getting a um a post so it was a postdoc post but i just called it a post because i'm not a doc right because <laughs> <laughs> my, my training is industrial um yeah. actually doing this um avian genomic stuff which is really quite interesting um and then it was come home have some tea and then i was going to the pet mm-hmm. shop to do fantastic work <laughs> of an evening um and actually that then because i'd been a member of staff at the university it then unlocked the being part of the the enterprise hub which is there to help staff with their businesses so I see. although a company venom tech wasn't a spin out um because i was a member of staff it and that then got us into helping people build the financial models and mm-hmm. a bit more of the the business part of of stuff coming coming through that that opportunity um and we get a lot of that now at uh discovery parks we sort of moved full circle in 2014 i think okay. um moving on to what is called discovery park uh which is actually the old pfizer site mm-hmm. um and in 2020 we actually moved into the building that i left oh, really? in, in 2010 <laughs> <laughs> um and so the you know the, the enterprise zones and there's a few of them um around that sort of are there to help small businesses and mm-hmm. the um the culture there is to you know help people learn about running businesses and have experts there of various different things and so when we moved into discovery park we realized some of our neighbors were experts in logistics now shipping venoms around the world is hard work when you don't yeah when you have to work out what you're doing um from from scratch whereas when you find people who that is their job that is their expertise you can make that a lot uh, a lot easier so mm. um but then you know it's still it's still networking it's just um a, a, not labeled as networking it's still um building those sort of relationships yeah um and yeah going on that also then the the investment side of things so very quickly realized that because venoms are complex mixtures we need to got quite serious hardware to separate them out into the component mm-hmm. parts and make them useful. But I couldn't see how the catch 22 was, was solved between needing the expensive equipment to fractionate the venoms and needing the sale of the fractionated venoms to pay for the expensive right. equipment. <laughs> and it was through forming the board where it became clear that we actually needed to raise um, investment to actually bring in that instrumentation. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately adds value to the product as well as applicability. Yes. Um, and when you've got such a um, novel and unique idea, there isn't a a tried and tested course. People can't no, look at you know, what Venom Company Y has, has done and what they exited for and, and what they turned over mm. because the, the data is not there. So you end up realizing that the investors are buying into the team and the trust right. of the team um, with, and sort of liking the idea of the science because we don't know, we've not made that future yet mm-hmm. of um, what what exit of, of an company uh, achieves in the UK. Um, and so, yeah, that, that understanding that when you're 
talking to investors, it, it is a two-way street. You mentioned it earlier that they bring skills and network to you as well as mm-hmm. as well as money, and they also have to people people you can get on with because you know you'll be uh, selling part of your company to to do that. And yes, you have to be able to work with them. Otherwise, it's going to be a very uh, difficult situation. Um, <laughs> and that was really quite interesting that you know, that uh, share certificates also are, are just made in Word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're written down on a register at company's house. Um, but there's nothing more to it than than that. No. Um, and that's really um, quite an enlightening part of this, the the process. Yeah, there's, there's a really good book called um, Sapiens. And I know it's behind me somewhere and I can't think who it's by at the moment <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, but I, I think um, it is a, 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 um, a scientist of some form. Um, and it basically talks about, it's basically a human society about yes. how everything we do is, is based on trust that I say this is a pound and you believe that, that is a pound and you understand yeah. Yeah, yeah. what you can do with that pound. But if you don't trust and don't believe it, then it's not actually worth it. And business, it completely is like that. There mm-hmm. isn't Venom Tech isn't a thing. It is a a piece of paper that I've said this is Venom Tech, and the people on the receiving end have gone, yes, we believe this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and yeah, and when you start to understand that, it becomes less scary that these things are not um are so sort of potentially fragile, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you look at businesses that are well established, and especially if you're in the early days of a business, they seem so far away from you in terms of how they do things and the infrastructure they have and the way they operate and all these kinds of things. But I think, you know, it's easy to forget that they've got years on you in in a lot of cases, right? And they've made lots of little change. They've not one day been this tiny business and then immediately turned into this huge business it's lots of little changes yeah, and lots yeah, of little yeah. improvements and it's um as you say you know the the things like share certificates the things like um you know and it's all becoming easier as well the more technology uh gets yeah, involved yeah. um a lot of it's common sense isn't it but it's it seems a world away when there's so much of it yeah yeah very much so yeah so uh, you know perhaps for someone who's starting out on that journey, and this may be something you've you've mentioned already, um, or maybe someone who's just starting out on their scientific career, is there is there maybe a key piece of advice you'd share, career advice that that's been particularly useful for you, Steve? The key thing in people starting on their scientific career is experience mm. um, outside of the academic world, um, because you know the academic qualifications and uh, teaching and, le- and learning is absolutely vital yes. uh, whether you're doing science or, or any other disciplines but when it comes to the other side there is a, a transition for a very a lot of practical reasons um, and so for me having a year out in my degree actually working in an industrial lab um, meant that um, that was the sort of top topic of conversation in, in interviews Right, um, because they wanted to know about how I work in you know, what they call the real world, <laughs> um, and that that was the, the sort of top thing for me. And I always have a lot of time for uh, students that are looking for work experience mm-hmm. um, because they need to understand how how things work on the outside. Um, 
so when you go and get your first job, it's not a total sort of eyes no, wide open, total shock. Yeah. You've you've had a a safety net introduction into um in, into uh, industry, mm-hmm. uh, and that was really really valuable and also um, a surprise benefit for me, which I didn't expect. Um, was that it? Um, the starting salary was higher because I had a year's exper- uh, industrial right, okay. experience, uh, and I was like, "Oh, that's quite nice." I have. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's not not why more not why I done it, but it was a nice bonus. That um, for me, I just wanted to yeah, I'm just sort of that that sort of sponge to sort of gain all the experiences mm. I can. But I very much see, and you know, COVID has been a great exemplifier of this. We've got a whole triage of students coming through that have had very restricted lab experience yes um and it's, it's of no fault of their own or, or the universities um and to try and then you know get some experience um is, is really quite quite vital mm-hmm. but for two reasons one is um for your own confidence and capability but also you might start working in a lab and realize it's not for you yes <laughs> so if you've done that in a um uh, a shorter term test environment it's uh less tricky to then fix <laughs> yeah no absolutely and it's not for everybody right it's uh, no, exactly it, yeah it's uh, as with everything it's uh i think you have to have a particular temperament to to be an experimental researcher right you, you yeah, have to be able to so. um to take the take the the negatives with the positives and that's yeah, true yeah. of everything but I think yeah yeah certainly and role. yeah and, and uh you know, field biology appears really glamorous when you see it in the wildlife <laughs> programs on telly um but you know there's a hard side to that job <laughs> yeah, absolutely absolutely uh, and so if you can get out there and experience it first that uh, you, you come into it into mm. a career with your eyes open certainly so yeah that's sort of a top advice for um you know students coming in their scientific career is get uh lab or field experience whatever your interest is 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 try and try out for real either over yes. the summer or uh, a year in industry and to actually test it out first mm. and, and you know if it's what you like then you've got yourself an extra bit of experience which is great for the cv and if not then you've got the opportunity to then in the you know, the next part of your studies to to tweak what you're trying to do to um to fit things you like because my sort of driving force again for a career in science is realizing that you spend most of your waking life at work so yes it's good to do something you enjoy doing at least for most of the time <laughs> oh absolutely and i think you know it's it's also i guess you know when you when you train as a scientist you you of course learn some technical skills and you yeah. learn some domain specific knowledge and and you know that's that's a crucial part of it i think what people miss sometimes is the the transferable skills that they're picking up the yeah. the way of looking at things analytically the way of developing a method to come to a decision about something yeah. Yeah. All, all those things that are um the way of structuring an argument you know all those things yeah. that that can be applied to lots of different paths so if if you were to go and get that experience and decide it's not for you, you you're not then stuck right you've you not can lost go and anything, adjust no. yeah uh, your path and and take those skills and and find something else that you you like so i think that's important to... yeah very much so and then sort of moving on you also asked about advice for people mm-hmm. starting their own business and it is um again you know get experience talk to people yeah. who are doing it um and 
yeah, go to networking sessions and uh, interact with people that are you know, running small businesses. Uh, we've all got a story to tell. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and usually happy to usually happy to to share that advice. Um, so you actually again coming into it with, with your eyes eyes wide open um, that it that there's a um, there isn't a there isn't a sort of nurtured test way into the companies that so much um with um trades or sort of selling crafts and those sorts of things and you're sort of a sole trader there's a, a blurred line legally mm. between you and your business and it's sort of a softer transition that you can sort of drift in and out from whereas making scientific company it was very clear that my customers were not going to buy from a sole trader no. it had to be a limited company yeah and when the inks dry on that form there is a a lot of legal responsibilities and you can't yeah. just stop there is a a process that you need to go down if you want to close that company and that costs mm -hmm. money yes um so it is is difficult to just test running a company <laughs> So yeah, definitely go and ask people that do. And there's plenty of um, SME forums. And yeah, if you're yeah. connected with the university, then they'll have sort of business departments to, to help on this side of things. But yeah, that was the sort of the shock that it that it, suddenly you had it and you've got a legal responsibility for this this thing. Um, yes. And yeah, it will cost you money to stop. You can't just go. Actually, no, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And as you say, I think you know you generally find that people are pretty happy to share, right? Yeah. It's not quite as it's not quite as cutthroat and competitive an environment as it might seem on American TV programs. No, no. <laughs> um, and you know, my my general experience with it has been is if you ask a bunch of entrepreneurs to tell you their entrepreneurial story, then you'd better have set aside quite a lot of time for that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> a, they like selling the story, and B, there's yeah. a lot to yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> um so bringing us back today steve um what's next for venom tech what are you guys working on over the next six 12 months yeah that's a really good question and sort of um as a scientist you know, making future predictions was quite alien to me because <laughs> i just saw it as extrapolating beyond the data um but in business you have to make those plans they may not be the plan that actually happens but you sure. have to be ready for for things going forward um and for us it is um growth in terms of um customer projects coming in but also the market so um the biopesticide market is relatively new to us mm -hmm. um so about four or five years now i suppose but um we still don't have the real density in that space so it is generating more more data going out to more conferences in the the biopesticide space uh to actually then um by sharing the the word of, of venoms and how they can be useful because they are biodegradable right and they don't shouldn't bioaccumulate and be more selective to then sort of build our um capacity in that in that space alongside mm -hmm. what we're doing in in, in drug discovery and so we're very much in a in a growth phase. Uh, we're still uh, still only little. It may be thirteen years along, but um, it's not a um, a sudden you know, boom industry. It is quite niche, and we're quite quite early. And in terms of this science, 
And one of the things that caught me out actually early on is that when I was leaving Pfizer, they were talking about being number one in biologics. Right. Um, and it's like, well, it's perfect time to set up a company selling biologics. Yeah. Um, but the devil was in the detail is back then they were talking about antibodies. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Not <I> peptides. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas now in the last few years, COVID has really helped the biotech sector deal with new drugs mm -hmm. uh, like um, RNA vaccines. Yes. They were, people were talking about them, but nobody really had any sort of traction in that space. Um, and, you know, peptide therapeutics are, uh, again, people are talking about it, but it, the traction is only just starting to come through for right. us. So it is um, a, we're very much in a, in a, in a growth phase um not so much with the species or we we the library is fairly fairly dynamic we bring in new species where projects demand it mm -hmm. um but it's the application of those and moving through from an identified peptide to a drug-like molecule so we've started doing um pharmacokinetic studies in-house right. looking at plasma stability thermal stability synthetic stomach fluid and synthetic intestinal fluid to the to how the venom peptides survive in those quite challenging biological systems. Mm -hmm. But that helps us understand how we can tune those peptides to being more drug-like. And so that's sort of the the sort of growth area for us um, uh, over the next sort of six to nine months, um, which is seeing me out at a, a, a lot of conferences, <laughs> a, a, lot sure. of shoe, a lot of shoe leather. But um, yes. ultimately, uh, I enjoy it, you know, being out talking to science scientists about about science um but always having that commercial hat on that you need to try and sell some things as well it's not just cool science <laughs> yes that's true that's true <laughs> well it sounds like an exciting time for you we wish you the best of luck with it steve of course um and thank you so much for for joining us today no, thanks tom thanks for the opportunity to um yeah talk about the, the what what i do um it is uh a, a fun thing and it's uh, one of the sort of top difference from the farmer job is that the the amplitude of the highs and lows are bigger yes. in your own business than yes um in farmer farmer is a lot more predictable um so uh and yeah it's a it's a really exciting place to be so yeah thanks for the opportunity to just um talk it through and uh, yeah i look forward to hearing the results absolutely Thanks very much for listening. Careers in Discovery is sponsored by Singular, helping you to build a brilliant biotech company. Biotech leaders spend far too much time, money, and energy on hiring and people issues. Head to www.singular-biotech.com to learn how you can recruit and engage your team more effectively so you can focus on developing medicines, treating patients, and saving lives. <laughs>